0: I am so excited about this next guest on the Career Musician Podcast. I've been following this guy's career for a long time and can say I am a huge fan of his work and was personally inspired by our talk on this episode. And I think you will be too. Phil Eisler is an award-winning composer with projects ranging from major motion pictures to gritty independent films, primetime television shows, and even concert stages. You may recognize some of his credits composing for binge-worthy shows such as Empire, Unreal, Shameless, and Revenge, just to name a few. Eisler has been nominated for and has received numerous awards throughout his career, and I know I learned a lot from our conversation, and I'm so happy to share this awesome knowledge with all of you right here on the Career Musician Podcast with Phil Eisler. Absolutely. So, I want to get right to it. Okay. Look, everybody can go online and dig up all the information about your history and about where you come from and, and a lot of that stuff, a lot of the stats, all the awards. I mean, the awards are ridiculous. Your resume is beautiful. I mean, just one you know, hit after the next. But here's what I want to know. When I first saw you on Revenge, <laughs> you were listed as Eisler, I-Z-L-E-R. Right. And my wife, and I, she's my business partner. We've been going back and forth. And we landed on Nomad reason being my last name is really hard to spell. People always Uh get confused. I always felt like, you know, that one name thing is kind of cool and people can identify it. How did you come about yours? Did you, did you think the same way for Eisler? And then I noticed now you go back to Phil and then the full spelling of Eisler. So tell us about that.
1: (laughs) Um, Well, it was one of those things where, you know, it's happened back in the band days and it was a producer I was working with at the time who was like you should be Isla with a Z and and I was like okay yeah you know it was 26 at the time 25 or something I was like that sounds like a good idea and then you know by the time I I hit you know 35 or so it was kind of kind of felt a bit daft to be honest um but funnily enough it did it, it did help in the very beginning for people to identify me a little bit and um, even if it was for them saying who's that pretentious asshole you know i don't, I don't particularly care what anybody else thinks anyway so it, it worked out fine but i think by the time i got to my mid to late 30s it was like all right can i i, I think i can have my name back now i think i've earned it
0: i love that well, i appreciate that the shedding the light on it and i love the fact that you don't care because what i always say as musicians as artists we can't be concerned with other things i not so,
1: and, and if you know if I was going to go back and give the younger me any advice, it would be to listen to the people around me less. Now that's not to say that, you know, you shouldn't have confidence or, or, um, mentors or, you know, like people who's people who you really trust, but you, you, you've got to listen to yourself more. It's funny. I think the reason that a lot of creativity happens when you're, when you're younger, you know, and the really audacious shit can happen when you're younger is because, you know, you kind of are audacious when you're younger and and it's, I'm not going to say you give less of a shit because that's not necessarily true either, but you, you kind of, you don't know any better to not have the strength in your convictions. And that's a good thing, you know? And then some of us just never grow up. <laughs> we just keep being arrogant. And awesome. I
0: could, yeah, but I love that. I couldn't agree more, man. That's really a good paradigm. I think it's very important. So uh, check it out. The other thing is you started off as like this, touring musician guy and then you Mm -hmm. transition into this world-renowned composer once again uh i identify with that like so many others that are listening i'm sure will be able to tell us about that transition uh you were with robbie williams and quite a few others dave stewart ryan
1: adams This goes on right yeah i mean with those you know i spent most of my time in robbie's band at the the time those other credits are mostly sort of one-off things that i did and uh records that I played on or writing that I did with people um most of it was you know I mean it was it was great because actually through Robbie I got to work with a few other artists like Tom Jones Kylie Minogue and and uh I'm not sure if that's where the Dave Stewart thing came about but the, but you know the, uh, just a bunch of other bunch of other people but mostly I was I never set out to be a session player really you know I wanted to have a band at the time uh I remember getting offered the gig to be in Robbie's band. And at the time, Robbie wasn't It's not that he wasn't a known quantity. He was because he'd been in a boy band, but that's what he was known for. So people didn't necessarily take him that seriously at the time. That's putting it kindly. And I was a pretty snotty, you know, indie kid shoegazing, you know, I'm not going to join a fucking boy band until my, until my, uh, Flatmate at the time pointed out that not only was I not being invited to join a boy band, but I hadn't paid the rent in six months, and if I didn't take the gig, she'd kick me out. So um so I went and met, met up with Robbie and mainly I just liked him. We got on really well. We have a very similar sense of humor, and you know, we just got on really well. And then when I heard his demos, I was like, oh shit, this guy's the real thing, you know. So that sort of drew me in. Because at the time, as you could tell by my by the state of my rent i wasn't particularly concerned with money actually um and uh um you know so it was more about you know even though obviously it was robbie williams and it wasn't like uh it wasn't like he went and formed a band but it felt like a band at the time we were all in our early 20s there was some monster musicians in that band um like yolanda charles who's uh, actually if you want to interview anyone great you've got to interview yolanda she's um She's a phenomenal bass player, and she um, she's actually, I think she's in Hans Simmer's band now, and she plays in in Squeeze, and she's played with millions of people, but f- amazing musician. Martin Slattery, another one who played with uh, Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros. Um, Chris Sharrock, who was in The Lars, you know, that's, did, did that song, There She Goes. Like, just, you know, great, great players. So I was totally like a pig in shit, you know, and just loving being amongst these these players and and in this world and stuff. And it just sort of swallowed up a large chunk of my life very quickly. I didn't even notice, really, because I was 24 when I joined that band or 23. even. it was really it was. And, you know, we started off trying to play theaters and couldn't fill them. Like nobody took Rob seriously. Then bit by bit, mostly through just touring, 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 touring. He took off and it I mean it was a short space of time it was probably the space in the space of a year he went from sort of not being taken very seriously to being the biggest artist certainly in England and Europe um and that was it I didn't really do you know the the other artists I played with and the other session bits I did were mostly peripheral to that until I came to LA and then then I had to you know I'd moved from London to New York Um, knew tons of people in New York. So there I was just sort of setting about, you know, putting a band together and stuff. And then when I moved to LA, it was actually to, to move here, to be with my wife. And I didn't know anybody here. Um, and, uh, so it, it took a minute for me to sort of figure things out and I was still flying back to New York and back to the UK to play sessions to you know, to pay the mortgage for, for a while, quite a while, actually. Right. Um, and then, you know, bit by bit, the film thing took off. Ah,
0: okay. So tell us about that, how it all formulated. So you said you didn't really set out to be a session cat, but you ended up doing quite right. a Did you start off from an early right. point focusing on being a composer? Did you know early on you wanted to be a composer?
1: Uh You mean for films? I, yeah. I mean, TV. N- not specifically. I... I- it's something I always wanted to do. And, and, you know, looking back on it, I was at, probably as in love with movies as I was, was with music, or it was a close second. Music was, you know, everything, but movies were definitely a close second. And, and even as a little kid, I used to love watching the, the behind-the-scenes stuff on, on, you know, whatever movie I was watching that week um always just like loved watching the behind the scenes vignettes that like Spielberg used to make and Lucas used to make so yes it's I, I suppose it's in in some ways it's something i wanted to do but it wasn't like it really wasn't until i think sort of my very early 30s that i started thinking oh, about it seriously
0: Excellent. And how did you? Does this? How does this sound? By the way, is this better or worse?
1: Much better. For better?
0: Okay. Good. I tried the one last thing. Okay. So, and how did you gravitate towards guitar? Did was again was yeah. there a natural inclination there or a process of other things or?
1: No. I I've so I was a huge Beatles fan as a kid. I was born in Prague and, you know, in '73. So this is still communist era, you know. um, way before the velvet revolution and we got out of the country when I was around nine. So my sort of very younger years, I was studying classical piano. Um, I was, you know, learning to read music, all the things that, you know, you'd sort of expect, uh, my exposure to Western music, meaning pop music, even from the sixties and seventies was, you know pretty minimal because there just wasn't any around it wasn't allowed you know it was mostly banned it was mostly unavailable but my mom and dad had been in england in the 60s that's where they'd met so um before the russians invaded in 69 so it was um or well, 68 '69. i forget um but uh they had a sort of small handful of records so you know a few Beatles albums, a few Dylan albums, a few things like that. And that was pretty much the extent of my exposure to, to that stuff. So I was a big Beatles ed and um, moving to England. I think I sort of, you know, I'm sure my parents were pretty busy just trying to find their footing, being in a country where, you know, my mum didn't speak the language and then all the rest of it to sort of worry about piano lessons. So I, it, I sort of dropped it for a little while and then, I remember actually before we left, I remember my dad coming home one day to pick me up from school and he had a guitar with him and he bought it like in a department store in Prague. Um, I might still have that guitar somewhere in the, in the attic or something. I mean, it's a Absolutely. Play, you know, it's, it's virtually unplayable, but it's, it's, um, yeah. he, he got it just because basically he was a big Dylan fan, big kind of fan of folk music, Dylan Donovan, Woody Guthrie and um he would he'd would sing me a lot of those songs when i was a little kid um and then eventually of course i pestered him in you know in teaching me a few chords and stuff and that was it you know then i was just in love with it so i i just decided this was something i wanted to do as precocious as it sounds mm-hmm. i knew 100 that this was what i wanted to do when i was eight years old or nine years old that's awesome and it's never changed and that Feels to me, you know, especially now that I have a nine-year-old and a four-year-old kid, I—that feels like a, a real gift, you know, it, um, to know, just know what you you're gonna do for the rest of your life. You know, when an eight-year-old says that, you're like, okay, you know, I'm gonna be a Navy SEAL or something, something, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to be president.
0: <laughs> um, that's that's funny. Again, I can relate so much because I knew I was going to be a guitar player. And by right. the time I was like 13, 14, I was like, I'm going to be a session cat.
1: I just knew it. Right, like, right. That's what I wanted to do. How you know at you know 13, 14 what the hell a session guy was? Because I mean, I was, I was, I was it's 18. interesting because I have a, a couple of friends, you know, that are session guys that always aspired to be that, whereas I wanted to be a Beatle. You know, I wanted to be... Yeah. A, and they were like, Not interested in that shit. What I mean, I think you know Tarek Akoni, right? Yeah, of course, a good guy. So Tarek Tarek is an old friend of mine, and he, you know, he's one of those. um, Aaron Sterling, I don't know if you know him. He's a phenomenal, (laughs) phenomenal drummer. Yeah, he's played with John Mayer for the last few years. Oh, nice. Um, But you know, he's played with everybody, and and he's one of my favorite musicians on the planet. Yeah. yeah. He's the same. He was like, no, I always want to be a studio guy. Like, how did you know? Did, were you into like Steve Gadd or something? Or- <laughs> well, it's funny because I, you your, know, Who were your heroes when you were growing up? Oh, thank you. That's a great question. Uh,
0: Eddie Van Halen. So I see Eddie, you know, i I think I'm just a year older. I was born in 72. So uh-huh. I saw Eddie on MTV and I was like done. And then I just started reading all the publications. And that's when I learned about, you know, Steve Lukather Michael Landau. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, Paul Jackson jr. And then those guys became my heroes and those guys were in bands. I mean, obviously Eddie, but you know, Lukather and all, I mean, although he was definitely a session player, but that, you know, they were, they were in bands, man. Well, when I was
0: that age, I was super uh, introverted. So Mm -hmm. I I said, okay, if I'm in the studio, I don't have to be on stage. And then it wasn't until later that I got my first gigs when i
1: was 18 19 20 i was like oh no i want to do it all the way rock and roll style yeah oh, i i fell for that bit hard i mean yeah. i i i was uh, out of the house every chance i got right. just to right. play anyway it's funny i had a couple of one of my one of my first jobs was just like sweeping the floor in a s- local rehearsal studio you know it was just like yeah. the kid who made the tea and swept the floor and set up the gear and i loved that job loved it because First of all, I don't know how they ever made money because nobody ever rehearsed there. <laughs> it was empty most of the time. But that was great because if we had no clients and I was there all day just kind of keeping the place open, I could just practice. I just had practice room, So I would play drums, I would play guitar, I'd play bass. I would just have this shit set up and play. Yeah. And um, it used to drive my boss mental. And then they had a recording studio too where you know I gradually sort of Pestered them to le- teach me how to use the equipment, and and I, I ended up running it for them for, for a little while, or being their sort of main engineer. Um, wow,
0: I was just going to say, did you learn how to use a, a console? Then is that was that how you did? I,
1: I it? did, but but at a much like lower level. It wasn't like you know guys who apprenticed at Abbey Road or anything. This was like a dingy little punk studio in South London when South London was rough as fuck. Like just. Uh. Like, Like going to going to work every night, you know, you definitely ran the risk of getting mugged. Wow. Uh, And it and uh, it was in some like little industrial estate in the middle of nowhere in yeah. But I think which was really miserable in the eighties. It was a like not a fun place. But this this place just had a little sixteen track Sort of demo studio where people—I mean—it was mostly terrible bands that would like save up their money to go record a demo on the weekend. You know, like they had day jobs; they were—they weren't real pro bands or anything. Most of them weren't. And um, on the odd occasion that, like, you know, a pro band would come through, we'd be like, because oh, they've got their own flight cases with like their names sprayed sprayed on the side and shit. Like, this is everything we aspire to. We must have our own cases. That's it. The cases, the branded the brand. go on. Yeah, the brand like cases, that. man. But yeah, I mean, I, I did learn how to use, you know, a console and we didn't, it wasn't even a 24 track machine. It was a, it was like a 16, 16 track one inch, I guess. Um, and, uh, yeah, I learned how to use that stuff, but very much on the fly. It wasn't, wasn't a real technical education. I'm, I'm by no means an engineer, but I did learn a lot, you know, that I Obviously, still sort of used to this day. I'm glad you
0: said that because nowadays, uh, of course, during since the pandemic, even more so. But a lot of the trend has been shifting towards, oh, I can do everything. I'm a producer, composer, writer, arranger, orchestrator, engineer, blah blah blah. You know, it's like, well, hold on, people. Let's not forget about the days when there was actually fucking collaboration and right. the collaborative effort actually raises the bar. Right. and again that's something that i really look up to for people like you and our good buddy who connected us by the way tim davies yeah you know, uh, fantastic orchestrator arranger yeah. uh you know but i still love that about that's what i love about the hollywood composer uh uh
1: you know model that you oh, still have a team well yeah but the team i mean that's a that's a, an interesting one because the team comes more out of necessity than creativity a lot of the time Uh, unless, you know, you approach it that way, which I do because it's, it's, I realized very early on that uh, that this is so much work that if it's not fun, it's just not worth it, you know? Um, and that the team part becomes a necessity out of just making deadlines. You know, it's, it is definitely a team sport. You can't, you can't do it all yourself, not in time anyway um but the thing is with you know you can make that fun too and the reason i set up a studio over at the warner brothers lot which obviously we haven't been there since march we've all been working from home but um is because i i wanted that i wanted to be surrounded by creative people and i wanted to sort of harken back to my days in the sundance labs a little bit because what i liked about that program in particular was we were all set up in you know trailers next to each other this was back when it was in utah before it was at the sundance ranch where it is now and you know you'd kind of walk out and have a cigarette and a cup of coffee whatever and have a chat with people and and um you know i i loved that i love that and that's kind of the atmosphere i wanted in my studio i wanted to sort of you know walk out the reality of it is nobody walks out we just you know in our rooms trying to make deadlines most of the time and not getting any sleep but you know the 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 principles there it's the thought that counts. yeah well hey you know everybody
0: always says be careful when you're asking for a tv series because you don't realize the amount of work and you're probably the umpteenth person who has affirmed that for me uh but i want a tv series so bad i'm just chomping at the bit
1: so you're here at a good time i mean christ there's so much being made right. right Exactly. So,
0: so tell us about that. I mean, you know, of course, you've done revenge. You're, you you do empire. You've done many others. Unreal. You know, shameless. Uh, you know, there's so many. Tell us about the ins and outs of that, man. I mean,
1: um, you you mean on the creative side or on the, on the well. Well, both on the creative because you have
0: so many cues that you have to create so many themes, right. but also on the logistical side of how to
1: best use your team to your advantage, you know. You well, I'm sure someone far cleverer than me said this, but basically the the plan is, you know, hire brilliant people and then just let them get on with their jobs. Yes. Um, you'd be surprised at how few people do that. It's it definitely requires sort of letting go of your ego a little bit and you know, realizing that you cannot get this all done by yourself. So, you know, a great music editor, great engineers, people like Tim, great orchestrators. Um, it's it's definitely worth having, you know, people that are smarter than you in the room at all times. Right. I, I think um, the process, creatively, it's it's um, been surprisingly helpful for me because for someone who set out to be in music because they wanted a life where there were no rules and didn't want to be constrained. And the thought of, you know, the thought of being like everybody else when I was a kid, um, as much as I stuck out like a sore thumb at school, the thought of being like everybody else would have made me fucking suicidal. Like I couldn't, couldn't handle that at all. uh, And I still find that scarier than anything. The idea of, you know, even though we kid ourselves and we all conform to something, but The idea of just being a sort of, you know, living in the suburbs and that whole bit still to this day just feels like a dead end. And dead ends scare me more than anything, like not being able to just take off. That idea frightens me more than more than anything. And yet the deadline somehow is my best friend. I don't know. I don't know why, um, but without a deadline, I just don't have the same drive. And, And somehow that drives the creative process for me as well. It might just be fear. To be I,
0: I love that. It's funny because Eric G and I are both nodding our heads in unison. I uh-huh. just saying that, you know, he's my right hand man. We're a team, and I love how you say delegate and trust. You know, don't I? I, I don't like micromanaging. I love having a talented person say here, do this. But we've learned that deadlines are the same for us. It, for some reason, when you're smashed up against that deadline, I guess it almost
1: invigorates
0: you to just, you know, go for it.
1: Yeah, it does, and and I think um, the I, I think the key to delegating successfully is I've sort of found out and I, I learn a bit more about this every day, but I think it's sort of getting good with the fact that other people are going to impart their fingerprints on your stuff. Mm. So with be it creatively or logistically or whatever, like they're going to bring something to it, and why wouldn't you want them to? It's only your ego that might want uh, prevent that. But you, you want that, you know, it's just that as anybody who, who's ever created anything will know you get that sort of bolt of lightning of like that. Oh, shit. I've had an idea and it sounds great in your head. And by the time that becomes reality, it's something very different. You know, it's like I've, I've heard the darker of my uh, the, the, the people with the darker senses of humor that I know. Would describe it as you know it just gets continually worse from idea to, in, to to actual inception um until it sort of is what it is and then you just give up right right. no <laughs> uh, i don't i don't quite share that point of view like i i you know but having produced a bunch of records and having written a bunch of songs that then you know go on to sort of have a life of their own i i quite like that in some ways i mean I, or at least you you're open to the the sort of the concept of happy accidents you know like that happens and that was not on the roadmap that was not in the plan but it's great so why not you know it's why would you get rid of that you know, it's it's great awesome. um and that helps when you're delegating a lot because it, it's not going to be what you had in your head when you sort of you know when you uh, came up with it in the first place. It's going to be something different, but that's all right. And I think when people hire you for a movie, they sort of... I don't think the important thing is for everybody that, you know, you touch every single component. I think it's that it's your vision, however you go about making that. I mean, when people make records, they make people, they make records in teams, you know, there are producers and engineers and mastering engineers, and they all impart something on on the process absolutely um, that's the that's the great thing about music it's the great thing about movies you know there's no such thing as an auteur director that's a myth <laughs> so saying hitchcock was a no no he wasn't right he wasn't running the camera he wasn't mixing the sound he right. might have been you know maybe he was micromanagerial and you know whatever for all the stories you've read about hitchcock or you know james cameron or michael mann you know it's like they all Collaborate. They might have a strong vision, they might be strong leaders, but they all collaborate. Hi, I'm Phil Eisler, and you're listening to The Career Musician with my friend Nomad.
0: Blasting the stereotype of musicians. Follow us at The Career Musician Podcast.
1: Help us continue to provide you with new and engaging content by getting our ratings up. Please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts
0: you guys implemented this home recording system for all of the orchestra players and anyone who else was involved, Uh, man, talk about that. The career musician, we're, we're, we're like an education platform. We're here to empower musicians Mm -hmm. with strategies for a sustainable career. Right. Uh, And we just released a six step guide to home recording pro level sessions. Yeah. And it's free. You go to the website and you download and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's interesting I know probably a good 50% of my musician buddies already have it dialed in. And yeah. there's, another, there's a whole nother faction of people who haven't right. done it yet. Um, and you mentioned that in the video, you're like, and some of our orchestra players, you know, didn't have a setup. So talk about an undertaking,
1: you know. Yeah, it, it was. And it's funny looking back on it now, because I, I feel like almost every musician that was in that orchestra has a, has a home recording setup now, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, my God, how much the landscapes changed right. in the last nine months! And what a day to be talking about it.
2: Yeah,
0: I know. That's, That's right. Talking That's right. about it. Yeah, you know, inauguration day. That's right. Yeah.
1: Oh, thank Christ for that. <laughs> um, Amen. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, it was it was a big undertaking. It felt like a big undertaking at the time, but not. It was also that time at the beginning of the pandemic when everybody was like baking bread and doing yoga and like chin down, hands up. We're going to do this, guys. We're all going to learn jujitsu online and learn to knit and bake sourdough, you know. And then three months, later, <laughs> you know, three months later, they're selling their pajamas in the front room going, what, still? <laughs> and um, uh... in that time, uh, I think everybody was very driven to sort of find solutions. So in some ways I found the, the studio is very receptive. In other ways I didn't. Once it got going, it, I found them receptive. When when um, when I first brought up the idea, everybody was still in the sort of head in the sand phase and they didn't really want to deal with it. And I think that what brought them around was, you know, a handful of us, by us I mean a few composers sort of saying uh guys we you know we're still recording we're still putting out material making tv shows and movies and there's a shitload of out of work musicians out here yeah um, that we employ on a weekly basis normally we can't just stop like these people have mortgages to pay and shit right and um so that drove that process and it was it was mostly basically you know I I knew that that handful of musicians were relying on the income from the last few weeks of Empire before the the series came to a close. And uh, it was just a way of trying to keep them gainfully employed, basically. That said, I think we've learned a lot about the process since. I mean, at the time, I was talking to, amongst other people, Disney and Microsoft, not Microsoft directly, but a developer for Microsoft, about um, trying to figure out some kind of way of recording remotely simultaneously from several points simultaneously. And, you know, obviously that's, that is another has not been cracked still. Um, And to put it in the words of uh, one Abbey road engineer, who's a friend of mine who said, we'll land on Mars before we figure that one out. Um, So in some ways, you know, we found creative solutions, I think in the end, you know, um and we're still doing that i mean i'm you know i'm in the middle of a movie now and trying to figure out how to do that we just did you know sort of plans for how we're going to record everything remotely um yeah. even as the vaccine's rolling out and you know hopefully there's a light at the end of the tunnel who knows right, um, right. but i will say that whole experiment great though it was is no substitute for an orchestra in a room i
0: couldn't agree more it's funny i think about when, when i landed back in 2005 here in l.a shortly thereafter I got hooked up with John Powell Mm -hmm. and I'll never forget there was, I did a couple films with him at his studio. And then there was one, he said, look, I don't have the time to micromanage this. Here's a bunch of good mics and preamps go Mm -hmm. home and do it. You know, I already had a setup, but he wanted me to use his certain signal path. So that was a blast because I got to go home and just cut all the guitars, you know? Uh, And that was a long time ago. My point is, look, if for the musicians listening who don't have that set up yeah we implore you get it set up
1: right you know yes you, know. you need you need to be able to make stuff i mean this is the age of making stuff this is right. although i've been doing this as long as i can remember i had you know yeah back when i joined robbie's band before that way before that from my early teens i had recording setups at home from you know where there was a four track cassette thing oddly right. enough back in my arsenal now as as you yeah. know, i'm getting into this whole sort of lo-fi world right i have uh, that i have my task camp four to one over here <laughs> I, I yeah the exact same thing right yeah i got like three different um port studios in various states of disrepair or being disemboweled to make weird noises and stuff i love it um, but you know and then i always had um even, it, was, it does make me laugh now because Robbie's band sort of started in, like, I think it was 97. My recording setup then was, like, a dirty, great big analog board, a, a reel-to-reel one-inch 16 track. And, you know, it was budget as fuck. It was, like, you know, a bunch of SM57s and guitar pedals for my effects. Like I rem- And I remember recording this one song uh, into... Onto ta- I, re- I did the drums onto tape in my bedroom on the tape with three SM57s, which is all I had, and some like Audio Technica mic I had at the time. Only had one rack compressor, so I had a couple of compressor pedals, so I went through those and then sampled onto an S1000 and chopped up, right? And then replayed on the tape. Because yeah, yeah. it's uh, with, uh, what was I running to trigger it? it Must have been like Cubase. No, not Cubase. It would have been Notator. Nah, synced to fucking analog tape. Wow. But it must've taken days to do that shit. That's and dope. then I remember trying to recreate that when we went to re record that song. Uh, we did a version of it with Robbie, like a few years later at I forget which studio, but we just could not get the sound. It was like, how the hell did you get that? So, you know? And in the end I had to dig up the floppy disks and find, wow. you know, like, download the shit for, you know, to, to be able to play on find an S 1000 somewhere and play this, this stuff back onto two inch tape to just get it. Cause there was no recreating it. See, that's the kind of thing I live for. I, I, I love that one-off. This is not, you know, yes. music is not a quantifiable thing. It's not zeros and ones. It's not, um, notes on a page on music. Right. Well, not, okay.
0: Uh, absolutely. Okay. Speaking of that, okay. So, w- what's your preferred DAW now? Do you do you compose in Logic and then do all your audio in Pro Tools, like so many uh, others? What do you? I prefer? used
1: to. Funnily enough, that's exactly what I used to do. Yeah. I used to do, but there was a point where I was doing a lot of songwriting and then starting to do a lot of film music, and so because Pro Tools at the time was Pro Tools Seven, yeah. was great and it was super stable, but it was uh, the MIDI was shit. It was just non-existent. So I used Logic for that stuff and Pro Tools for the song stuff. And at, at a certain point, I was like, why am I using two programs? This is a stupid waste of time. Plus, Logic was just, it was useless back then. I know that's John's favorite software, isn't it? It is. But it's still I, I have it. no idea what it's like now, but at the time, it was just, it was, there was so many bugs in it and it was an absolute nightmare. and I just I, And it didn't sound very good to me. It's so Whenever I play with the same mic, please everything in Pro Tools sounded so much better. So I love hearing you say that. It might be completely different these days. I'm I'm not going to be one of these guys that has a (laughs) booth in the park going. Pro Tools is the best. Change my mind. I don't give a fuck. Use a you know. Use whatever you want. Exactly. Um, yeah. But I ended up just going with Pro Tools when Pro Tools 8 came out because all the MIDI yeah. stuff came out. And, of course, that's the very moment that Pro Tools started crashing all the time. <laughs> um, but for better or for worse, I've stuck with it. And so I, I've been in Pro Tools for probably 15-odd years, actually. Yeah, um, and, and to this day, you know, now it's... Um, and it's condensing more and more, actually, because it used to be two HD rigs. One for video and one for sequencing with, you know, three or four computers running. Now it's getting smaller. You know, now it's I'm actually about to condense all of that into one computer because I don't need two Pro Tools rigs. And it's a nightmare to manage and latency and all kinds of crap. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's nice to see all of that going away, actually.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I love seeing you in the conductor chair. Is that something that, again, was that a process or were you like, Nope, I'm going to be a conductor. I know I'm going to, and I know you studied with uh, somebody who's really uh, intense with that. I can't
1: find it right now. Well, a few actually, Um, Dave Newman. uh, Yes. That's what I saw for one. And Lucas Richmond, who's also a great teacher. I mean, yeah, yeah, it, it wasn't like I set out to be a conductor. In fact, it was something I was terrified of because when I started in film music, I, I hadn't really read music since I was, since the age of maybe 18 or 19. I, I just didn't need it. You know, as a session player, I would maybe do some, you know, r- sort of jot down some lead sheets, and that, that was about it. When you came to a session, it was, there was never sheet music. It was always, you know, someone would sit down with an acoustic, play you a song, and then you'd figure out the arrangement, and da da But those are the kind of sessions I did. So, reading music wasn't necessary and, and it wasn't really necessary when I started doing film either. But the more I kind of went back to my classical roots that had been there as a, as a kid really. And the more I sort of fell in love with that and the more I wanted to do it, uh, the more I tried to find ways into doing it, I've sort of considered going back and doing a music degree. And then I just thought, well, that's kind of pointless because there's, um, there's so much in there that isn't really going to help me directly. Studying when you're 30 is very, very different to studying when you're 19. You know, it's it's um, it's a very, very different process. And you've already formed so much of your musical mind, I suppose, or your, your voice or whatever that is. So uh, I guess and where did it begin? I think it was actually BMI who turned me onto it onto Lucas Richmond's course. When I'd sort of said, I remember having an agent now, very much my ex agent who I said to, you know, I really want to do more orchestral stuff. And he said, what do you want to do that for every kid out of USC is doing that. Don't do that. Yeah. And I thought, fuck you, man. I went, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Remember what I said, you know, stop listening to the people around that's you. So right, that's right, that's right, that's right. Um, Don't surround yourself with people like that. That would be my tip for the day. There you Um, go. But uh, BMI said um, a very good friend of mine at BMI said, yeah, we have a conducting course and it's a sort of a fellowship. We pick six people every year and, you know, maybe a space will open up next year or whatever. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to start, I'm going to have a bit of a refresher course on theory and start to, you know, get my brain back into it. And then of course a space opened up that year and I said, well, hang on, I can't even really read this stuff yet. Like, you know, give me a year. Yeah. And they were like, it's now or never. It's up to you, mate.
0: Ooh, I so, love
1: it. So I had kind of three months to get my shit together in a very, yeah. very intensive. So I, I hired a teacher and you know, and started sort of reconnecting all those all those bits of my brain. I love it. Do do things that scare us, right? It only helps us grow. It was terrifying at first, and it's funny to think that I feel fairly fit pretty comfortable with it now i love conducting more than anything else it's it's my connection it's my last connection to the music it's my last chance apart from mixing to really form the music and i have spent my life you know in recording studios anyway it's it's very it's it feels like home to me um which is why i don't really sit in the booth as much um i know there's a lot of different schools of thought on that you know, some composers sort of like tethered to that idea that you have to be in the booth and you have to hear every finite detail and all the rest of it. But, you know, I think there's a point where you still have to mold the music. And for me, that's much easier being in a room with musicians and doing it through sheets of glass and, you know, headphones. And it just immediately turns it into something clinical for me anyway. You know, everybody has their own process, I suppose, but, um, I don't know for me that's just something that i fell in love with pretty much right off the bat the way i tend to fall in love with things that scare the shit out of me yes that's sort of a pattern yeah. like I, i'll be fucking terrified of doing it and of course the first day of the the, the conducting course um lucas richmond my teacher then who you know i love to bits he's a he was amazing first teacher um the first day we had to get up and conduct two pianos and um, you'd be surprised how bad a train wreck that can be when you don't know what you're doing as i found out very quickly um but I, I thought well you know at least i'll get to watch a few of the other people cock up and then you know see what their mistakes were and of course he calls my name first and he's like up you come <laughs> <laughs> and we're gonna do uh we're gonna do beethoven's first just the first movement off you go i thought oh fuck and of course it was a disaster and and, uh and i'd been you know and i'd been practicing and thinking i knew what i was doing i've been practicing for three months and thinking right I'm, i'm on it watched every video of every conductor and soaked up every bernstein quote and all the rest of it and of course i got up there and i was absolutely shit um but pretty much right away after the initial sort of like horrific disappointments because they video what you're doing, which by the way, if you're an aspiring conductor is the best you'll, you'll hate yourself and you'll cry pretty much every time, but, but you'll, um, you'll learn a lot. Uh, and after you get over that crushing, you know, ego murder, you'll sort of either fall in love with it or it's not for you, but I fell in love with it. It was really, it was like, Oh man, this is something I really want to do. i love that i took up up, i've taken up a couple of things recently which are clearly not a good idea for me to take up especially being you know being 47 and not you know like i you know took up jujitsu a couple of years ago and constantly injured and you know but absolutely in love with it skiing similarly like three years ago i hadn't really skied much in my life a couple of times now it's like i'm completely addicted to it you know they're both a fairly stupid idea <laughs> yeah but but a big vision you it know it's the
0: norm from what you're used to every day you have to zoom out and get into something totally different right
1: to well, cleanse the, the yeah, past the, the more the older i get the more i realize that the old cliche of you know t- how precious time is yeah and if you love something you better fucking do it that's right Because there is no later it's that's it's right. now you know that's right. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't really, I try not to shy away from things that scare me. I try not to take things on just because they scare me, because I've had a bit of a propensity for doing that as well, and that's not always good either. But, you know, you can tell. You can tell pretty quickly, and conducting was one of those things for me, for sure.
0: Beautiful. Well, hey, listen, in honor of keeping your time, because I know it's super valuable, once again, thank you so much. Before we go, can we do some rapid fire real quick? Absolutely, yeah. Don't even think about it. All right, Eric. Start the clock. Start the clock. Maybe let's go. Oh my god, we're on
1: a timer. This is like the Queen's Gambit. Holy shit! (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. Good, great piece, by the way. Queen's Gambit. It is. All right. In three, two, one. Top three artists in your playlist.
1: Uh, Beatles, N.W.A., Uh, Studio or live? Both. Guilty pleasure food. Oh god, Italian food. Easy. Three tour essentials. Uh, pff, nothing that I can mention on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Hidden, <laughs> talents. <laughs> Hidden talents. Hidden talents. See last answer. Libation <laughs> of choice. Libation of choice. Uh, Brunello. Guilty food pleasure. You already asked me that, didn't you? Uh, hey. Italian oh. food. Oh, I already said that. Oh, shit.
0: Well, what do you spend your money on for fun? Uh, I have money.
1: <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> Fuck. I'll get around to that. Favorite decade of music? Oh God. Um nineteen seventies or the seventeen seventies? What would you do if you weren't a career musician? Oh pfft. maybe a cook.
0: Maybe a cook. I love it. Shame on me! I asked the same question twice, bro. You crushed it, <laughs> Phil Eisler. You are yeah. an inspiration to us all, especially uh, here
1: at. <laughs> <you> guys, I really, I really love that you're running this platform and you know, um, putting stuff out there for musicians. I think, I think it's awesome. And if you don't mind, I do have a little plug actually because I have a soundtrack album coming out, Please. and um, I just did a movie with Melissa McCarthy, which just came out on HBO Max called Superintelligence, and we did. Um, Speaking of conducting, we it was, you know, recorded when you were still allowed to record massive orchestras and choirs and all be in the same room together with very few click tracks, very old school, you know, approach to, to doing the whole thing. No pre laser just orchestra. And um, it was a really fun score to do, recorded with Sean Murphy, who does, you know, all of John Williams's scores and and John scores, who I'm sure you know. Absolutely. And uh, that's coming out on uh, Lakeshore Records at the beginning of February. So I'm really proud of that one. I, I hope people enjoy it. Well, we'll be sure to check it out. Where would you like to
0: direct everybody? I know you have a, a great IG, Phil Eisler Music, and website.
1: Yeah, I would say direct everybody to my Instagram. Uh, we're going to have a new website up and running fairly soon, but you know I'll announce all that on the on the IG. Okay,
0: awesome, brother. Man, thank you so much once again. Thank you guys. That was yeah. Fun.